How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. This month I have particularly enjoyed the Grand Slam, a brute IPA brought to us by Black's Brewery. I love strong beers and at 6% this one definitely hit the spot. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award winning craft beer magazine Ferment and if that wasn't good enough they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of 8 beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers 52.com. Hi, I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome to Seeing Red. A UK true crime podcast. Oh, we can't say it for very much longer. No, this is episode 24 of season two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've only got, yeah, two episodes left. This and one will and be next week's. A global true crime it podcast. It will be, just Seeing Red. As of September. Um, this episode will also be kind of dropping pretty much around our one year anniversary. And we'll yep. have put some posts up. Uh, celebrating that so check those out but yeah we've been around for 12 whole months which is amazing thank you for sticking with us guys and listening ever since um the john palmer episode which was episode one our first ever and it feels like i don't know 10 years ago but also like yesterday no so because you've been driving over and because i'm pregnant um, we are not celebrating with our beer 52 we haven't got our beer 52 well mine's ready ready to ready and waiting yeah so I did get us a little, there you go, Yeah, white grape. It's M&S though, so... She's trying to pull that cork off. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. So there you go. Get pouring. Yeah, it's a shame it's not champagne. I know, I am sorry, but couldn't let you drink and drink. How are you supposed to fucking cheers me before oh, you sorry. drink? Jesus. Normally if it's alcohol, I would just neck it, but well, I should have true. waited. Happy one year anniversary. Happy one year anniversary. And thank you for listening, guys. Um, Huge thanks to our new Patreon supporters as well. There's loads of you uh, this week. So um, our start. So we've got Penny Wilson. We've got Rachel Hale. David Smith. Melissa. Joanne. Michelle Arnold. Erica, damn it, I've got the difficult name. Erica Desmarais Hick. 
Dem yeah, Desmarais Hick, I Des think. Desmarais Hick. Sarah Martin. Ian Pierce. And thank you, Fedor, who updated his pledge. Thank you very much, guys. We really, really appreciate it. Um, if you would like to join uh, this in crowd, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash scene red. Seeing Red Podcast? Seeing Red Podcast. I Seeing think. Red Podcast. Um, or just Google Seeing Red Patreon and you'll find us. We've got about, we've got three levels of different membership, so you can have a look and see. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, fuck's sake, Beth. What is it? We definitely have three. Yeah. We've got three different levels of Patreon support as well, so you can pick and choose what's going to work best for you. And there's merchandise for everybody that signs up. So this week it's Mark's turn to tell us a story and. Compared with the beginning of season two, when it was quite light-hearted, this is going to be quite a heavy episode. See, I disagree. Do you? Because that wasn't light-hearted. We covered the murder of Nisha Patel-Nasri. Oh, I was thinking of like the brutal. Peru 2, which was the no. mid-season break. Yeah, that was mid-season. So. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. definitely not light-hearted. So today's episode features a brutal double murder, so brutal in fact that it took one of Britain's most experienced forensic pathologists, Dr Robert Chapman, 12 hours to record all of the injuries at post-mortem. So the victims, Laurent Bonomo and Gabriel Ferrez, both aged 23 and from France, were biochemistry students who had been selected for a three-month secondment to Imperial College London. The two men were close, and although they didn't live together in London, they did often hang out at Laurent's flat in New Cross in south-east London. Laurent, from Velo near Aon-Provence, was described after his death as a fantastic, fun-loving, exuberant guy. His fiancée, Marie Bertez, said he gave her ten months of a happiness I had never experienced until then, and added that she would never stop thinking about him. Gabriel from Prusel near Amiens was widely travelled, a compulsive reader of history, and worked during his holidays at an Amiens hospital. His father Oliver said, Gabriel is, was, the most intelligent, affectionate, wonderful son anyone could ever want. He had such a bright future, and now that has gone. On the day before their deaths, Saturday the 28th of June in 2008, the pair had attempted to watch the tennis at Wimbledon but couldn't get tickets, so instead they headed to a pub to watch the rugby. Their last moments were captured on CCTV just after 9pm when they were spotted at Canada Water Tube Station and then later on at a McDonald's fast food restaurant in the Surrey Quay shopping centre. After arriving back at Laurent's flat, the pair played on a Sony PlayStation before retiring to bed just after midnight. So the next day, at approximately 10pm, one of Laurent's neighbours heard a loud bang. Racing outside, she saw Laurent's flat ablaze. The loud bang had come from the front windows being blown out by the heat of the flames. The neighbour called the emergency services and fire crews soon arrived on the scene. Once inside the flat, they were presented with a scene of unimaginable horror. Inside the living room lay the bodies of Laurent and Gabriel, and it was immediately apparent that they had not died as a result of the fire. Post-mortem examinations revealed Laurent had been stabbed 194 times, Whoa. and Gabriel 47 times. Jesus. Both men had been repeatedly stabbed in the head and eyes with such force that the knife had penetrated their skull and eye sockets, causing damage to the brain. 
Detective Superintendent Mick Duthie, who would go on to lead the investigation into the murders, would later describe the scene as total carnage. He said it was almost like they were treated like animals. There was blood on the walls and the ceiling. And I've seen loads of reports describing the scene and some people are comparing it to an abattoir. It was that bad. Laurent and Gabriel, dressed only in their underpants, had been tied up. They'd been bound at the ankles and wrists and subjected to a sustained attack. After they had been murdered, their attacker had set fire to the flat in a feeble attempt to cover their tracks, but because the emergency services had arrived so quickly, the fire never really got chance to take hold, and so the scene was preserved. Thank goodness, because if there's going to be any sort of small mercies in this, at least you could find out what was going on, what had happened. Yeah, at least justice will prevail in this one. Oh, God. So what happened then between midnight on the Saturday and 10pm on the Sunday when the fire crews arrived at the flat. Why were Laurent and Gabriel subjected to such extreme violence? And who could possibly be responsible for this barbaric crime? In order to answer these questions, I'm going to take you back to the very beginning. At approximately 4.30am on the Sunday, actress Maureen Bass, perhaps best known for playing Battleaxe Mo Harris in the popular BBC soap EastEnders, was in bed asleep at her home in South London. In the rear bedroom of the property was her friend Sue Ann Blomfield, who takes up the story. I was sleeping in a room at the back of the house. My room overlooks the garden and is above the conservatory, she said. Maureen was sleeping in the front room and her son in another room. I went to bed at about 1am. At about 4.30am I was woken up by a noise. Something made me get out of bed and go to a window. I thought Maureen's cat had fallen off the roof. I saw a man. He wasn't in the room but had his hands on the window frame. I had the impression he was going to try and climb in. I said, what the fuck are you doing? The man was standing on the conservatory. He put a hand up to cover his face. He said, is this Mo's house? I said, no, it's my house. I was alarmed because I was expecting a cat. He said, I want her signature. I again told him to fuck off. He seemed to lose his balance at this point and I banged on the window with both hands. He said, you've done my ankle, I'm coming back. I saw him climbing the fence of Maureen's garden. I told Maureen what had happened and she called the police at about 5am. Fast forward half an hour and the man who had been after Big Mo's autograph just moments earlier was now outside Laurent's flat with an accomplice about to commence what the judge in his trial would later describe as an orgy of bloodletting. I don't get it. Like, what? So he wanted to go get some woman's autograph before he did this? Or well, do you they, think he, was he going to They were going to rob her. Yeah, they were going to oh rob her. And I think that... I don't really come back to this part of the story, so we'll kind of talk about it now. Mm. But um, obviously he knew where she lived. He knew yeah. who she was. Um, he lived just around the corner from her. And the plan initially was to go and rob her. And when you look at what actually then happened with these students, I think she could have ended up dead quite Jesus, easily. what an escalation as yeah. well. So the man, Dan O'Sonex, aged 23, and his accomplice Nigel Farmer, aged 33, had been awake for 36 hours at this point, binging on a cocktail of cocaine, ecstasy and vodka, or what I like to call a Beth and Special. I knew that was coming. You just knew it, didn't you? <laughs> I was just bracing myself for what insult's going to be next. Just a standard Saturday night for Beth <laughs> Having already burgled Laurent's flat a week earlier where they stole his laptop, the two men decided to go back when they knew that he would be home. This time the plan was to get his debit card and PIN. 
One of them would go and withdraw cash, whilst the other one waited with Laurent in case he gave them the wrong PIN number. Once the cash had been successfully withdrawn, the two men would take any further items of value before leaving the flat. But something went terribly wrong. At their trial, both Dan Osonex and Nigel Farmer blamed each other and lied, so it's not exactly clear what happened, but we do know that things did not go according to plan that morning. Through analysing phone data and bank records, it is apparent that both Laurent and Gabriel were attacked over a period of two and a half hours. Although we don't know for certain, it is likely that events went as follows that morning. After leaving Big Mo's house at approximately 5am, Dano and Nigel head to Laurent's flat. They arrive at approximately 5.30am. After quietly breaking in, perhaps they'd taken a key in the earlier burglary, they carry out a quick recce of the flat and establish that there are two men inside, both of whom are asleep. Picking a victim each, the two men drag Laurent and Gabriel out of their respective beds. Shocked and groggy, the French students are most likely compliant with their attackers. They are told to do as instructed or they will be killed. Dano and Nigel force Laurent and Gabriel to sit down and their wrists and ankles are bound to the wooden frame of the chairs on which they have been forced to sit. Dano, the ringleader, asks the men where their debit cards are. They tell him and Dano instructs Nigel to find the cards. Having located them, Dano asks the men for their PIN numbers. The men give them to Dano and he leaves the flat to withdraw as much cash as he can. You. This is just terrifying. Like the sneaking around while you're asleep, and then I'm being dragged out you of your bed up, when you're like half, yeah, while oh totally asleep. And then they've obviously thought to themselves, like this is horrible. Like horrible. It's horrific, terrifying. But just comply. Yeah, which you would. Which you have to do. Yeah. yeah, you absolutely have to do. Just let it happen, and then and then afterwards you can try and get these people caught. But oh god. So, with Dano gone, Nigel stands guard, ready to torture the men if Dano calls him to tell him that the pin numbers don't work. Dano arrives at a nearby ATM. He uses Laurent's card first and is able to withdraw £360. He then puts Gabriel's card into the machine and enters the pin, but it doesn't work. The machine spits the card out, and in a state of agitation, Dano puts the card back in and re-enters the pin number, but the machine doesn't accept it. He tries again and again, and eventually, the machine swallows Gabriel's card. Angry and convinced that Gabriel has lied to him, Dano doesn't even bother to phone Nigel to get him to torture Gabriel for the correct pin. What's the point? The card has been swallowed. He storms back to the flat and unleashes his uncontrollable rage at Gabriel, stabbing him 47 times in quick succession, whilst Laurent looks on helplessly, knowing that he is next. Although Gabriel has been stabbed 47 times, his attack is over in seconds and he is now dead, disfigured and left in a bloody mess. Laurent, by this time most likely shaking uncontrollably, his body having gone into shock, is attacked by both Dano and Nigel and stabbed repeatedly in the head and face. Halfway through the savage attack, Nigel calls Dano's brother to boast of what the pair are doing. Dano's brother hears Nigel screaming at Laurent to be quiet, telling him, shut your fucking mouth or I'll cut your hand off. Can you imagine hearing that? Oh my God. Knowing that you're going to potentially be on the receiving mm-hmm. end of it? 
Nigel would later allegedly comment to a friend that Laurent just wouldn't die. Possibly that explains a significant number of stab wounds on his body. Mm, Um, But I think, yeah, it was a case that they couldn't quite believe that the violence they were inflicting upon him, that he was still alive. That does make sense as to why there was such a difference in sort of like an escalation from the first to the second. Eventually, Laurent does die and Dano and Nigel ransack the flat for what few valuables remain following their earlier burglary. The pair steal some computer games and the mobile phones of their victims before fleeing the scene and heading back to Dano's family home. Coming down hard from all of the drugs he'd taken, Nigel later wakes in a paranoid state. Convinced he and Dano had left DNA evidence at the scene, he decides to go back to the flat that night and torture. <laughs> you know when you wake up and you like you've been out drinking the night before and you're like, oh shit, what should I do? Can you imagine you do this sort of in a bender and then you're like, Fuck I can't. I thought the same. Yeah, yeah, I thought like obviously we've all kind of woken up the next day and um, remembered something that we you know absolutely regret. Yeah, that's a bit yeah. embarrassing. But yeah, can you imagine sort of coming down from oh like loads God. of coke? you know, hungover and thinking, oh my God, we did actually torture um, and kill those two people. set fire to the house to get rid of the evidence. Yeah. Oh my God. So unbeknown to Nigel, after he had set the flat ablaze, a neighbour had seen him leaving and was also then able to provide enough of a description to police to create an artist's impression. And when I wrote that artist's impression... It reminded me of the good old <laughs> days when we worked together. Oh my God. And Bethan used to, I'd kind of get you to sort of describe something. I'd be like, oh, what did it look like? And Bethan would be like, I'll do an artist impression for you. It was the worst drawings in the world, but. No, they were pretty they good. Were, they were always, they, they were made good. sense, didn't they? Yeah. Be a general idea for you. Yeah, we had many a happy hour doing that. Maybe I should just do artist impressions of the kit. No, I'm not going to even suggest that. That would, <laughs> that would be, be brilliant really bad. to have some art. A bit like um, They Walk Among Us. Their artwork is incredible. Yeah, I love what they do. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Anyway, when Nigel read reports in the press that the fire hadn't taken hold and DNA evidence was now being analysed, he rightly became concerned for his freedom. When the artist's impression was featured in the Sunday papers one week after the murders, Nigel knew his days were numbered. It was an uncanny likeness to him. Deciding to take matters into his own hands, the following morning, Nigel walked into Lewisham Police Station in South London and told the desk clerk that he wanted to speak to a detective. He refused to give further details, however, when he was overheard telling a woman in the waiting area that he was wanted for two murders, he was promptly arrested. I mean, it's the it's the first time he's actually done something properly this whole episode, isn't it? Yeah, handing himself in. Mm. Rather than being taken into custody straight away, Nigel was taken to hospital and treated for third degree burns. When he had set fire to Laurent's flat using petrol, he had been engulfed in a fireball and his hands and face had been badly burnt. Having treated his oozing blisters with ordinary moisturiser rather than seeking the medical attention he so desperately needed, Nigel was in a bad way. But he did recover sufficiently enough for officers to begin questioning him. In the meantime, police had been studying CCTV images recovered from the New Cross area and eventually a key figure emerged. A figure that detectives believed could be Dano Sonex. Dano was a known violent offender who had spent just four months of his entire adult life outside of prison. And he was only 23, but that's not good, is it? God, that's crazy. By now, the painstaking forensic work was also yielding significant clues. Bloody fingerprints were found in the flat next to a palm print, 
The fingerprints were unclear, but the palm print was a match for Dano. Dano was eventually found hiding in the loft of his grandparents' house in Peckham. When he was taken into custody, he threatened the arresting officer, saying, I'm going to bite your face off. Both men admitted to being in the flat on the morning of the murders, however, they claimed they had simply carried out a burglary and left. They denied the charges of murder, false imprisonment and arson. So who exactly were Dano and Nigel and what propelled them to commit this brutal double murder? Dano Sonex was born into a notorious South London crime family with a long history of violence and drug addiction. Dano, the middle son, was happy to keep up tradition. He has been described as, quote, a man who is prone to using extreme forms of violence, both indiscriminately and gratuitously. He was jailed for eight years in 2003, aged just 17, for a string of offences, including an attack on a rival, then aged just 16, who was stabbed three times in the back and chest in a trivial row over a car. Dano immediately went on the run for six months and then armed himself with a blank firing 8mm replica Beretta handgun to go on a robbery spree. So this was back in 2003, not at the time of the, the double murder. With the help of a 16-year-old friend, he held a gun to a 23-year-old's head as she and three male friends went out for the night in Surrey Keys. Dano and his accomplice took bags, cash and valuables before running off, with Dano shouting, This is how we fucking do it. He sounds like a lovely young man, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. I sort of imagine that's the kind of thing I would say if I carried out a mugging, (laughs) though. I just could see myself doing that. (laughs) You'd definitely be the sort of person who'd want a catchphrase. But I feel like you'd go to say... This is how we do it, and then you'd be like, "This is how you do it." Uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> Oops, uh, I mean, uh, fucking uh. Uh. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. So later that same night, the pair stormed into the welcoming takeaway in Bermondsey and demanded money from the till. Dano, wearing a hood, jumped on the counter and fired the imitation gun twice at shop worker Chan Lugia. He fired a third time when Mr. Lugia's son Giep ran from the back of the shop to confront the intruder. When Mr. Lugia realised the gun was firing blanks, he gave chase and managed to grab hold of Dano and throw him against a nearby shop front. The takeaway worker was pistol whipped before his brother ran to help him. Dano continued to struggle and pulled out a knife and threatened the two men before police arrived. So obviously that's when he was sent to prison, where he served most of his adult life up to that point behind bars. He was then released on licence on the 8th of February in 2007, the year before the double murder took place. And within two days of being released, he staged a terrifyingly similar attack to the French student murders in a row over drugs. In this incident, he tricked his way into a flat in Bermondsey and took a pregnant woman captive before ordering her to call her partner to the flat. So when this girl's boyfriend arrived, he found his girlfriend bound at the wrists and ankles and being held at knife point. The man was also then bound and had a pillowcase placed over his head before Dano made threats using a saw and a hammer and demanded money. Jesus. I mean, a saw. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder if he was like threatening to cut that person's hand off. A complaint was later made to the police, but charges were not proceeded with, and Dano, who, as I said, was on licence, was not recalled to custody. That same year, he was caught in April after being arrested on suspicion of handling stolen goods. An administrative error meant he was never charged or recalled to prison, 
leaving him free to then carry out the brutal murders the following year. Dano harboured a deep hatred for the police, which he attributed to a raid on his family home when he was a child. His father, Bernard Sonnex, had 26 convictions recorded against him for 47 crimes, including gun and drug offences, and he has served six prison sentences. Dano's brother Bernie, 36, was only released from prison a few days before the end of his brother's trial. He has 21 convictions for 34 offences and has served 10 prison sentences. So really, yeah, this kid had like no chance. He was always going to end up a life yeah, of Yeah, it's an extremely violent family. I mean, that's not the end of it. Louise, his 35-year-old sister, was jailed for five years in March 2008 for causing grievous bodily harm after she repeatedly hit another woman with a golf club. Ooh, a golf club. I mean, these people are really using some weird implements as well. Saw, golf golf club, club, hammer. Yeah. Nigel Farmer was in awe of Dano's family, even though they actually bullied him and abused him. They were big time and he was not. They were a hardcore crime family and being associated with them would buy you protection in South East London. So that's why Nigel hung around with them. Mm -hmm. Whilst Nigel was clearly the weaker of the two, he, like Dano, did have a ferocious temper, which he often directed towards women, especially his closest family members. His own mother would later testify against him. God, you know you're like a shit, don't you, when your own mum will testify against you. And that reminded me of another case, and I think it was in season one. Um, where the guy's mom kind of like he was like, oh, I was, I was yeah, that killer. was it, yeah. He mm. was like, oh, I was with, I was with you, mom, wasn't I? And she was like, no, you were out, yeah. And he was like, mom, take the hint, yeah. the police are asking, and she was just like, tell them the truth. But I think that was more because she was just thick. No, I think, I think it's, I think that's a really good. Like, do you know what? I didn't bring you up to be like this. Mm. You're, you've messed up, so. Do the, do the time for your growing. So in Nigel Farmer's mother's police statement, she said of her son, when drunk, Nigel could get very angry. He could behave violently and lose control, lose the plot. He has a terrible temper. Nigel's former girlfriend, who cannot be named for legal reasons, revealed they had split up because of his drinking and cocaine use. He'd threatened to kill her when she told him that she had a new man in her life. After one drunken round, Nigel smashed up their kitchen and she did keep a diary of his outbursts because she was actually trying to get an injunction against him. Nigel twice tried to kill himself by slashing his wrists and was actually admitted to Oxley's Hospital in Dartford in Kent on May the 25th in 2008. So really just a few weeks before that double murder. Um, And that was after a visit to the A&E department of the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Woolwich. When Nigel was in the Oxleys Hospital in Dartford in Kent, following a ward round on May the 28th, a meeting took place involving a senior house officer, a senior nurse, Nigel himself and his mother. His risk of causing violence and harm to others was assessed as low to moderate. The general impression from the medical professionals was that he was suffering from an adjustment disorder caused by the split from his girlfriend and his abuse of cocaine and cannabis. But on the 29th of May, Nigel discharged himself, claiming he was not getting the right help. He later told his mother that if he did anything bad, he thought he could get away with it because he'd been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Nigel hoped to prove himself to the Sonics family by becoming as violent as they were. He claimed to have witnessed numerous beatings by Dano's father in pubs in New Cross and Deptford. 
So Nigel's background is far less conspicuous than Dano's. His brothers have completed MA courses at university and his stepfather was actually a teacher. Nigel had one previous conviction for robbery, which happened in June 1996. Um, But that was it, really. So that's all he'd been caught for, and that was quite some time before the murders took place. So hopefully that goes some way towards explaining why these two men went on to do what they did in 2008. It kind of does, but the escalation from we're going to rob you to then stabbing the victims that many times... Like, I get that they were obviously off their heads, but I don't know, this just seems absolutely crazy that you'd go from, oh, we're just going to use your cards and get all your money, to I'll chop off your hands and I'm going to stab you over a hundred times. When their murder trial began, jurors at the Old Bailey were told to brace themselves as they were told of the unimaginable horror of these killings. Mm. Crispin Aylett, QC prosecuting, said the defendants were possibly intoxicated by a cocktail of drink and drugs during this orgy of bloodletting. He said whatever the reason for it, they subjected their victims to over two hours of the most hideous terror and suffering. And for what? £360, a couple of telephones and two PlayStation games, enough to keep them in drugs for just a few days. The court was told of Dano's previous convictions, which showed that he had a propensity to use and revel in gratuitous and excessive violence. However, despite the sadistic ferocity of the attack on the French students, suggesting that the killers were psychopaths, Prosecutors said there was no evidence that either Nigel or Dano suffered from any kind of mental illness, which is really weird because obviously Nigel had been in a mental hospital just weeks before these murders took place. Yeah, but I think that was because he wasn't dealing very well with the breakup and yeah. he was self-medicating with drugs. I don't think that that was... A sort of underlying yeah, condition. Really yeah, fair him. enough. Yeah. I think you're right, yeah. That's how I kind of understood it. But I think that's really interesting. They're behaving like psychopaths. But they actually are not psychopaths. They're just dickheads, basically. But I wonder if that was partly the kind of cocktail of drink and drugs that they were on. Yeah, it must have been the cocktail of drugs just escalated their natural behaviours to be twats. And then... They were like uber twats. Yeah. In court, Nigel told the jury that he'd been with Dano on the morning of the murders, but that he had returned to the Sonics family home where he'd been staying and that he'd left Dano. Dano, he said, had come back in later, covered in blood. Nigel did admit then going to the flat and starting the fire, but he said that he'd been forced to do that by Dano and the Sonics family, and that he'd not had anything to do with the burglary or the murders. Mm. Funny how he's also making phone calls when he wasn't there with the things in the background. Which they would have had evidence that, you know, where he made those calls from. Dano obviously had another version of events. He claimed he'd been in the flat with Nigel and that they had tied up the students and taken their cash cards. He said that when he returned to the property from a cash machine, Nigel had already killed them. Mm, that's that's quite a interesting. More yeah, it's more plausible. Version. Like it didn't happen, but at least he's trying to think on his feet. Yeah, I mean, I could see that having happened, but I do think Dano is the more violent. Exactly, of the two. if it was the other way round, of the two, one of them, like if. Nigel had gone out I think that might have been more likely and to inflict that many injuries yeah. is going to take more than the, the amount of time it takes to hop, hop over to an ATM and get some money out you said with the 47 that it was over within minutes well yeah seconds even yeah so I don't know but that's yeah that's definitely the more plausible lie 
So the court heard the final bitter irony that the student's death may have been a result of a tragic blunder. As I said earlier, when Dano went to the cash machine, he was able to use Laurent's card successfully, but when he tried to use Gabriel's card, it was retained by the machine, resulting in him flying into a murderous rage that would ultimately result in the deaths of these two guys. But transaction records show that Dano had the correct pin. The machine had been able to read the card's balance first, but when he'd re-entered the card to withdraw cash, he'd got the digits in the wrong order. So all along, Gabriel hadn't lied to him. He did have the right pin, obviously just just out of his mind on drugs. He'd kind of entered it in the wrong way. I mean, even when you're not out of your mind on drugs, I went to pay for something and just started typing my phone number once instead of my pin number. You can easily do it by accident, but he's his first reaction is going to be, he's lied to me. Yeah. That's so sad. In a heartbreaking victim impact statement read to the court, Laurent's father directly addressed his son's killers, saying, After the first burglary, Laurent was terrified. He cried on the phone to me, and I tried to comfort and reassure him. It was then that I realised that although a young man, he was still my little boy. I explained to Laurent that he had grown up in a sheltered environment and that he was naive to the outside world. He was easy prey to people like you. I told him to be vigilant at all times. He needed to grow up quickly if he was going to marry and have children with his fiancée Marie. He went on to say, For the last 11 months I have been forced to speak about Laurent in the past tense, when all I could see for him was a bright future. Laurent was a fantastic boy. From the day he was born he brought happiness to friends and family. He was kind and loved life. You took him away from those that loved him deeply. Do you know the meaning of love? Laurent adored his parents and not only are we suffering, but also his ten-year-old sister Amber. Laurent was her big brother and her hero. He was the only one who looked out for her and protected her. She was so proud when she talked about him to her friends and it is unbearable to watch her suffering and struggling to cope with her loss. Laurent came from a large family, he had ten cousins and he was the eldest and the one that everybody looked up to. Every Christmas we would gather together as a family, only last Christmas he was not there. Their leader and hero was gone. Before Laurent came to London, he and Marie took part in a civil ceremony to cement their relationship. They were planning their future together. Her life has now stopped. Laurent had many incredible friends who loved him dearly. Not only have you taken Laurent's life, you've taken my heart and soul. I need to try to learn to live without my son to try and live a normal existence and try to forget the torture you inflicted upon him, but I am tormented by the images of his suffering. I wish from the bottom of my heart that you will stay in prison for the rest of your lives. I can't bear to think that someone so evil will walk the streets again, that my daughter or a member of my family could encounter you again. I appeal to you as Laurent's father to have a conscience, to end our misery and suffering by one day telling the truth about our son's final hours. That I mean, it's just heartbreaking, mm. isn't it? I thought I've what not a brave dad. Yeah, I've never really heard somebody sort of, you know, a father speak about their son in that mm. way. And what touched me so much is like Laurent is twenty three or was twenty three, and his dad's kind of talking about you know he was a grown man. Yeah. But in that moment when he phoned his dad and said I've been burgled, mm-hmm. which obviously happened a week before he was murdered, he was like, you know, I'm like really scared to be here and he was crying to his dad and he's still his little boy yeah and his dad Mm -hmm. was like yeah you're still my boy just heartbreaking yeah so i know that was quite long but i really wanted to kind of read that and i also want to read a victim impact statement that gabriel's mother Mm -hmm. um, read out in court 
She said, how to carry on to live and survive after you have lost your murdered child in such inhuman conditions. He died suffering in such a way. I could never forget what was done to him. This barbaric act is indescribable and inexcusable. No human being deserves such a death. To die for so little gain does not make any sense to anybody. My son Gabriel wanted to live. He loved life and everything it had to offer. Even from a very young age he was keen to embrace his surroundings and was very open to the world and its culture. Gabriel was a sociable boy who had been recognised by his teachers. He was my pride and joy. He was kind and sensitive, worrying and concerned for the whole family. He wanted to see the people around him happy and he contributed to this with his love for life. My relationship with my son was marvellous and we spoke to each other regularly. He would talk about his studies, his marks as well as his disappointments and even his love life. We would talk about everything and nothing was taboo. I was, I am and always will be very proud of my son who was a talented and exceptional human being. My life stopped on the 29th of June in 2008. I feel battered and bruised as a mother forever scarred. I can no longer live an ordinary life. So again, I know that was long, but I thought it was really important Mm, to just um, cover off what she said. And I've just got a very brief statement that Gabriel's father read. Mm. I can no longer stand hearing people complain about trivial problems in a supermarket queue, for instance. I might also tell you that every morning on my way to work, I cry, always at the same hour. I no longer know how to answer people when they ask how many children I have. I might also tell you that I do not sleep at night and I fill it with the sound of the radio to occupy my mind and to stop thinking. I also might tell you that I feel ashamed of laughing now, that I look elsewhere whenever I come across the sight of a wedding, of other people's happiness, because the display of their joy is like so many stab wounds to my heart. So Dano Sonex and Nigel Farmer were both found guilty of all charges and they were sentenced to 40 years and 35 years respectively. And the judge said that he only didn't give them a whole life tariff because of their relatively young age. Yeah, and I it is the first tar- like the first murder, I suppose, as well. And it's not like there was it was multiples or anything. Oh, I don't like know. That. It's very difficult. I th- I do think that that's quite fair sentences, personally. Yeah, um, unusual ju- for this because we usually I know. Yeah, I mean they're still the judge, they're really they? long sentences mm. and they're minimum terms, so they might end up being in prison for the rest of their lives. But just one important final note: um, the then Justice Secretary Jack Straw did apologise to both victims' families because um, he admitted that due to an oversight, essentially Dano had been yeah. uh, not recalled back into custody when he should have been. And had he been recalled back to prison and there hadn't mm-hmm. been that administrative error, he would not have been free to kill the students. Yeah. And he was very much the ringleader. So, And I suppose even if Nigel had decided to go and do that, it's less likely he would have... I don't yeah, know. I, don't I don't think it would have escalated. But, I don't think but I don't, it would have been completely different circumstances. Yeah, it absolutely. would never have happened. Um, so, you know, I think... That must have meant something to the family. It must have, but equally, what a bitter irony mm-hmm. that, you know, had he been in prison, their children would both be alive oh, today. There's just so many times when things like that happen, isn't there? Yeah. 
So a really brutal case, really violent murders, uh, which we've, we don't cover all that often. Obviously, we do cover some. I think yeah. one episode I entitled a brutal double murder, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, the, these were particularly brutal. So yeah, really, really sad case. Really sad. I found it really difficult to research and to, to Sometimes write up. Sometimes they do what just really affected you, me. They? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a really bad headache as well when I was sort of researching it, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to sort of go down that dark path. And it was mm. probably the, it's one of the very few times during making the podcast where I've, I've found that it's actually affected me. I think it's also quite, um, like, it's a very honest thing to as well admit that. Yeah. It'd be easy for us to be really... like, no, they're not, but it is. Yeah. Well, thank you for sticking with that case because I think it's an important one and I'm glad that you did finish writing it and, you know, we have released mm. it. There you go. Um, let's know what you think in all the usual ways. Yep. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email. If you um, aren't supporting us on Patreon, then if you'd like to if you'd like to come and join that in crowd yeah then head over to a seeing red no patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast mm-hmm. we are going on hiatus for about three weeks uh from next week so mm-hmm. if you want to enjoy a few bonus episodes and we've mm-hmm. got a mini back catalogue on patreon you will um so thanks for listening thanks for joining us and we'll, we'll see, see you next, next week, week for our final episode of the season lovely see you then bye bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.